This is On Script, a new podcast bringing you conversations on current biblical scholarship. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. This is On Script. This is Matt Bates, and I'm your host for this episode. We have an exciting interview lined up for you today with Professor Joshua Jipp on this fantastic new book, Christ is King. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Joshua Jipp is currently Assistant Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. So I'm pleased to converse today with a fellow Illinoisan, as I'm located just a little bit south of Josh in the small but lovely city of Quincy, Illinois. Josh, then let's start with a very important question. Uh, Have you ever been to Quincy? Well, I'm actually from Iowa, so I I would refer to myself as an Iowan. And I think on a couple of occasions, we've taken different routes to get back to my home, and we have gone through Quincy. But I have not stopped and uh, seen the the lovely city of Quincy, so I don't know much about it. Well, we are, uh, at least uh, according to our own advertising slogans, the gem of the Mississippi. Uh, you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to check us out more thoroughly sometime. Uh, as I find that out with Dubuque, I guess, huh? <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Uh, as I mentioned, Josh is a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or TEDS, as it's affectionately called. Josh's Ph.D. work was completed at Emory University in 2012 under the supervision of Luke Timothy Johnson. Previously, Josh completed a THM degree at Duke Divinity School, as well as an MDiv degree from TEDS. Obviously, Josh, you must have done a thing or two to impress your professors at TEDS, uh, since they promptly hired you after completing your Ph.D. work. Uh, (laughs) Apart from his academic pedigree in 2013, Josh also won the prestigious Paul J. Ochtemeyer Award through the Society of Biblical Literature for his paper, Christ the King as Living Law, Paul's The Law of Christ in Ancient Kingship. Today, we're discussing Josh's brand new book, Christ is King, Paul's Royal Ideology, released in 2015 with Fortress Press. It's a terrific book. I'd strongly encourage you to rush out and buy a copy. We have a link to the book on our website, www.onscript.study. Again, thanks for joining us today, Josh. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So, Josh, as a way of kicking our conversation off, I want to ask you two questions. Uh, One, about the center of gravity, so to speak, in your book. And then a second question about how it fits into broader conversations in biblical studies as a whole. So let's start with that first question. Uh, Could you give us a brief overview of what you're trying to achieve in your book as a whole? Yeah, my book, uh, Christ is King, is really an attempt to show that uh, not all of Paul's language, but much of what Paul says in his epistles um, cannot be fully understood, or at least is best understood, when it is situated within the framework of royal uh, messianic language. So the argument attempts to show that uh, more than just that Christ is an honorific, that the language of Christos actually does have a royal designation, but that when we do understand that, um, we're able then to uh, understand uh, various portions of Paul's argumentation as expanding upon how Christ is a messianic figure or how Christ is a king. And I attempt to then work through sort of four case studies, uh, really long and pretty broad case studies, to show how uh, significant portions of Paul's language is uh, illuminated with it when it's understood uh, within this framework. 
So I argue with respect to uh, Paul's law of Christ uh, in chapter two. I argue with respect to Paul's Christ hymns uh, in Colossians one and Philippians two. I argue then in chapter four with respect to Paul's union with Christ language. And then in chapter five with Paul's uh, justice language that these really um, significant aspects of uh, Pauline discourse are best understood as uh, within the framework of, of king, kingship language. Uh, now for that second question, um, then you, you mentioned this uh, as you were kind of explaining your overview, you know, that it's more that Christ language is more than honorifics. And I know that uh, you're, you're kind of uh, touching on some important scholarship there. Could you then um, frame your book for us uh, in terms of how it interfaces with other scholarship? Who else has done work along similar lines? How does your project sit within that scholarship? Uh, where do you see yourself making your most distinctive advances? Yeah, it's, I, I, you know, the genesis for the project started maybe about 10 years ago. So that, and I say that because um, I say that to indicate it was before Matt Novenson's really important book, Christ Among the Messiahs. Um, it was, you know, starting with some uh, insights from people like Tom Wright, and Richard Hayes, Adela Collins, <clears throat> uh, Ross Wagner, Marcus Bart. Uh, a lot of scholars had already started to go against the trend in terms of saying, listen, uh, Paul's uh, use of Christos, um, at least in some instances, needs to be understood as a reference to a Davidic Messiah. And so uh, some of their arguments had seemed convincing to me. And I thought, all right, if this is if this is true, if this is if this is accurate, um, then what other portions of Paul's letters uh could be understood as uh, within the same uh, sort of in the same kind of framework. Matt Nobinson came along then uh, in 2012, I think, or two, 2013, and in my in my view, you know, really solidified uh, the argument that Christos is an honorific. Uh, not meaning that every time Paul uses Christos, there's sort of this uh, royal theology that's inserted into every sort of uh, uh, instance or, or uh, of Paul using the language of Christos, but that Christos is an honorific and that Paul can and does in certain instances um, uh, use it to indicate that he is uh, viewing Christ as a royal figure. So this was some of the scholarship that had already been done in the past uh, few years that uh, kind of gave motivation for me then to open uh, this up, I think, a bit more broadly to ask the question, if this if this is the case, if Christos is an honor, royal honorific, then what and if in the ancient world there is uh, an abundance of literature devoted to who is the good king and what is the ideal king and what is the king supposed to do? And if this is a category that is central to Israel scriptures, which it is, um, then how can we perhaps move this argument further? Um so those were some of the scholars that had been doing uh, work in the past. I could get more technical in terms of certain uh, individual chapters in my book uh, that were more or less helpful uh, for making this argument. But th those are some of the scholars that I really um, uh, uh, benefited from and interact with throughout the book. Very good. I, I think that's a helpful overview. Um, and one of the things that might be helpful uh, for some who are maybe even less steeped in scholarship is is to, to just be aware, I guess, that sometimes um, 
it might seem obvious to us today that whenever we hear Jesus Christ or something like that, that the Christ part isn't just a last name, that there's um, there's a significant valence of meaning to the Christ part. Uh, but there's been ongoing conversations in scholarship. Some people have wanted to kind of empty the Christ part of any kind of significance. And I guess Novenson then, um, I think we'd both agree, is an important point of recovery, as well as your own work, too, in seeing a richer overtone of, of meaning in the Christos language. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I, I think one of the problems in past scholarship has been presuming that we know what messianism is. And since Paul deviates from what we think messianism is, then uh, or what it should be, then Paul is not a messianist or he is not constructing uh, or, or speaking of Christ uh, necessarily with uh, messianic designations. Uh, but but I think Novenson, is, his book has been uh, particularly helpful to sort of clear away some of those problematic past um, constructions and say, listen, if Paul is speaking of a royal figure, he's doing everything that we would expect someone to do uh, when they employ an honorific in a way that is not different from what we get with Antiochus Epiphanes or Caesar or Augustus or Judas, Judah Maccabeus. Um, and he's interacting with texts uh, from Israel scriptures that are well-known kingship or Messiah texts, then we need to let Paul himself sort of have his own voice in terms of defining, uh, defining at least for Paul, who and what the Messiah is, as opposed to sort of presuming that there's this essentializing definition of who and what the Messiah is, and Paul doesn't conform to that. Can I back you up a little farther? Now, you've kind of touched into this a bit, um, and uh, the question that I wanted to frame is, how did you get interested in Christ the King as a topic in general? Now, I think you've you've kind of begun to approach this a little bit from an academic end. Uh, how about from a more personal end? Um, can you can you kind of touch into your personal narrative? Like, how did this become important to you as a whole? And this might go into more of your story about how you got interested in biblical studies in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll let you take that question where you wish. Yeah, Sure. Um, I guess if I if I back it up personally, there are two ways I could approach this. One is uh, pretty much everything I write um, or study, at least within an academic context and then write upon is motivated by a question I have. So it's it's rare that I write something that is um, sort of coming out of a dogmatic kind of standpoint that is saying, listen, the world needs or, you know, New Testament scholarship needs to know about this. So I'm going to now deductively kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, tell New Testament scholarship what I think uh, it needs to know. It's it's rather always motivated out of something that is perplexing to me. So I don't understand this. Or what is Paul, um, just to stick with Paul, what is Paul doing when he says this? And so for me, uh, really the entire book was motivated out of problems or questions that I had. Questions such as, and and that, uh, you know, maybe I'm still sounding like a scholar here, but it it also intersects with um, just my identity as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, uh, as my form of attempt to honor the scriptures by seeking to understand what they say and uh, push in, press into questions that I have that don't, uh, where the answers to those questions are not immediately evident. So really, every chapter is an attempt to do justice to that. Uh, for example, uh, if Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, why do we not get Paul talking about the kingdom of God? Almost, I mean, except for a few 
sort of bland occasions, where did the kingdom language go? Uh, why was this concept that was so important to Jesus, as we're given in all four Gospels, especially the synoptics, where did it go in, in Paul? Or um, uh, is, you know, the phrase, the law of Christ, um, is it really uh, ironic, haphazard, playful um, construction that really doesn't help us understand Paul's theology or Paul's discourse? Uh, that's what a lot of New Testament scholars have said. But is there a more appropriate, convincing, helpful framework that we can uh, that we can understand that phrase in light of? Um, uh, so, so really, the entire book, uh, from a personal standpoint, is an attempt uh, to me to ask questions of Paul and try to provide more convincing answers. Uh, maybe a bit more on the devotional side, and I think we probably share some commonality here, uh, Matt, along with uh, some like Scott McKnight and Tom Wright and others. But is um, you know there, there's an attempt for me in this book to place. Uh, Christ as the king, as the enthroned Messiah who reigns over all, who as the result of his resurrection and enthronement at God's right hand has therefore given to us the spirit uh, and now rules over not only the church, but over the world. There's an attempt for me to try to place this at the center of Paul's theology and Paul's discourse as if not the, maybe the, uh, at least one of the central um ideas or notions or um, uh, that, that Paul uh, is, is essentially giving to us. So uh, I think uh, Douglas Campbell is helpful when, uh, when he blurbs the book and says that to some extent, this is, you know, my book is an advocacy for a bold new proposal for the center of Paul's thought as a, Paul's thought as a whole. I think that's accurate. It's my attempt to say, I think Christ's kingship really is at the heart of what Paul is doing in all all of his epistles. One thing that I, that I think about as I, as I'm, as I'm pondering your book is um, the methods you use uh, to, to approach uh, your problems. I mean, you're, it's really a question driven approach. Like you said, you're trying to answer specific questions. And I, th I think it's fair to say your, your main method would be historical critical method. Um, but there's a lot of methods in biblical studies today, everything from, you know, still people doing things like source criticism to reader response criticism to, you know, ideological readings of a whole variety. Um, so what if somebody, and this is just, a, you know, kind of a theoretical question for you, um, what if somebody wanted to use a different method on, on the same data that, you, that you've, you've kind of churned up using your historical approach? And uh, someone maybe who's even a little bit critical about uh, the kinds of results you find because they're suspicious about uh, the kind of narrative it embodies and says something along the lines of this. Uh, you, know, you know, Josh, you valorize kingship too much. Uh, the, the institution of kingship in the ancient world, well, frankly, it was evil, uh, this person says, uh, and it was oppressive. Uh, and uh, instead, they wanted to do something like a post-colonial reading or something like that. Um, do you think that your project uh, lends itself to other kinds of approaches? Uh, and, and could you comment on that? So I would I guess to answer your question, Matt, I would say I would I would certainly understand um, those questions being raised, but then my response to them would be to say, uh, instead of just rejecting uh, the depiction of monarchy that we get uh, in Paul's letters, let's talk about what kind of monarchy this is. And, and is it good? And is it liberating? Or is it oppressive? And then we can go back and forth and have a conversation from there. And I, I think I would also say, 
you know, Paul is a first century figure. He's working within the scripts, the stories, the motifs, the topoi that are available and are given to him. Uh, and so, uh, so we need to evaluate him, at least from within his own historical moment and what he's doing before then we are able to uh, get to the next question of uh, what does that now mean for uh, 21st century peoples? Yeah, I think that's very sensible. And, um, you know, you kind of have to lay a historical foundation because this Christos language has been evacuated of meaning and you're trying to do a project of recovery here. It strikes me that some some of what you're saying is similar to the kinds of discussions that have been going on about the language of God as father, you know, and uh, people mm -hmm. especially who have had a negative experience with fatherhood or with their own fathers or, uh, or uh, object to patriarchal structures in general are concerned about this language and, and want to say, well, isn't God mother too? And in which case biblical scholars say, yes, there is language, you know, uh, in the biblical text that would affirm um, that God uh, can be depicted in metaphorical female, female categories just as much as male. Uh, and so that there's this dialogue that needs to take place about um, uh, about that. And similarly, perhaps with this idea of Christ as king, um, certainly there have been oppressive kings. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean uh, that there can't be a good king and that we don't need to kind of think seriously about the historical metaphor and, and what it's doing for us. Um, let's 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 jump over to the second chapter of your book uh, then. And uh, this was the chapter uh, that, um, you know, I mentioned uh, that you'd won the Octomeyer Award in 2013 in New Testament studies for a, a paper that you'd written called Christ, the King is Living Law. And it seems that this paper forms the backbone, backbone in fact, of the second chapter. Uh, when I read your book, uh, I found chapter two to be quite in intriguing. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and what I was wondering is if you could develop for, for me and for other listeners um, what you mean um, when you say that uh, for Paul, Jesus Christ was the living law. What I argue is, or what I, the question I ask is, uh, is there a helpful or convincing background context to understand this phrase, the law of Christ? And my argument is that when you put law and you put king or messiah together, it activates at least notions or, or of the king as the person who perfectly and um, uh, ideally embodies the laws within his own person. So it taps into a political dispute that is characteristic, uh, characteristic of many sources in the ancient world that essentially asks the question, uh, what is the best constitution? Should the written laws be supreme? Um, if the written laws are to be supreme, uh, then who legislates those laws? Or is it better that you basically have someone who is the supremely virtuous person that rules and uh, within his own person uh, embodies the law, lives out the law, is able to be viewed as a model uh, who essentially incarnates the law. And in the ancient world, on the Greco-Roman side, what you have are uh, uh, numerous sources um, going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, who would say it's best if you can actually have a virtuous person who would embody the laws, the people then are able to look at this virtuous king, are able to see the way in which this person obeys the laws, and they then see this sort of shining example of light, of law observance, um, and uh, follow in suit. Uh, the Torah in the Old Testament does not use the language of the living law, but it has the same sort of depiction or a similar sort of depiction 
of the king is the one who obeys and embodies, uh, embodies the law supremely. So, I, I mean, this may be common knowledge for many people, but I was surprised uh, that the Torah only gives one uh, command to the king in Deuteronomy 17, in the law of the king. And what the king is supposed to do is basically he is just supposed to read the law, um, write out the law, and obey the law. And neither and, and here's getting back to your your last question, uh, not to be oppressive in terms of abusing the law. He is simply to be one like his brothers and sisters who neither exalts himself above the laws uh, uh, and abuses it, but um, uh, or, nor is to turn aside from the commandments, but is simply to obey the law uh, um, as sort of an example for the rest of the people. You get the same sort of depiction uh, in the Psalms where the psalmist or whoever uh, edits the Psalms will put a kingship psalm next to a Torah psalm that basically gives the notion of the speaker of, uh, uh, of loving the Torah and delighting in the Torah is the same person who is the king. So when then I come to these Pauline texts in Galatians 6 and 1 Corinthians 9 and Romans 13 through 15, what, what I argue, what you find is essentially a royal figure, uh, a person who is described as a Christ, Christos, who um, uh, brings the law to its perfection or its completion. You can see that in Galatians 5, 14, uh, and essentially embodies the law of love legislates the law, and then the people are to look at this perfect uh, example of the embodiment of Leviticus 19.18, who loves neighbor, who gives up himself uh, uh, for the good of his brother and sister, and is to see in this Christ um, the embodiment of law that they themselves then are also to follow. Um, last thing I'll say about this is the goal of for the king obeying the law is is basically to bring about friendship, harmony, and peace. And Paul picks up on the same sort of thing in Galatians and Romans. Uh, the goal of following uh, the law of Christ is so that it will eradicate dissension, bring about unity and harmony and friendship within the early Christian assemblies. Thanks, Josh. Let's jump over now uh, to an issue in chapter 3. Um, the chapter as a whole treats the topic of how kings were praised through hymns and songs and the like. And I love what you did here uh, with the famous so-called, you know, hymn in Colossians, uh, the hymn, you know, which uh, in speaking about Jesus begins, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and so on and so forth. Now, in historical critical scholarship, this hymn has, you know, uh, been read through the lens of the wisdom tradition, especially, uh, but you are asserting something different here. You're arguing that the category of praise to a king offers a better explanation of what we find in Colossians than wisdom alone. Uh, can you follow up on that and just explain why? Yeah, let me give you a few reasons. I, when I started to write this chapter, I, I thought perhaps I will start with a section that is a criticism of reading Colossians 1 within the framework of personified wisdom or uh, even middle platonic sort of speculation on the, on the logos. And then I thought, no, I'm going to, I'm going to just sort of uh, try to make uh, a positive argument um, for what's going on here uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and let those then evaluate, uh, others evaluate what, what that means for sort of the more standard narrative that Christ is being portrayed here as personified wisdom. There are a couple of uh, elements of the text that uh, 
to me started to uh, for me started to cause the 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 wisdom the personified wisdom thesis to unravel uh, the first one uh, comes in verses uh, 12 through 14 of chapter one uh, where uh, the reference to all of those uh, pronouns the the relative pronouns in the hymn is an explicitly royal figure it is in praise of the king who transferred us from uh, uh, the uh, the realm of darkness and in the, uh, into the kingdom of uh, the beloved son. Uh, so, so if you read at least the hymn within the light, in the light of the framework that Paul has either uh, placed it in, if it's pre-Pauline or Paul is composing it, uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't entirely matter for my argument. But if you read it in light of that, the framework that Paul has established in verses 12 through 14, then everything that one is praising uh, that figure in the hymn for uh, is going back to that Davidic son, that Davidic king who um, uh, has transferred us out of one kingdom and into another kingdom. Uh, so that was one of the first things that started to cause me to have some problems uh, with the wisdom uh, thesis. Uh, the second thing that started to give me some problems is that so many of the aspects of the hymn itself resonate with kingship language. So where does this language of, in you know, verse 15, for example, that he is the firstborn son or he's the firstborn over all creation? Where does this come from? Well, it seems to me that it comes from Psalm 89 or uh, Septuagint Psalm 88, where there is a uh, Davidic psalm uh, that within that psalm, uh, the king is praised or the king is spoken of as God's firstborn son. The God says to his king that he is going to place his hand over all of creation, over the rivers and over the seas and over everything that he's made. So that uh, the father will uh, allow the son or allow the firstborn to share uh, in his kingship, uh, even with respect to his rule over creation. There are notions of him reconciling uh, all of creation to himself, uh, which I can't think of any wisdom passage. Uh, maybe one can someone can show me one, but I can't think of any wisdom passage that speaks of wisdom reconciling all things to himself. But of course, there are many passages that speak of the king as a divine agent or the agent of the divine who uh, stabilizes uh, the kingdom and reconciles and pacifies uh, the gods or God's enemies to himself. And there are other notions in uh, in the hymn. I won't keep going on and on, expanding upon every aspect. But even the head body metaphor that, again, I don't I don't know where this would fit, doesn't seem to fit as well within a wisdom framework. But there are numerous passages that speak of the king uh, or the emperor as the one who is the divine mind or is the head of the commonwealth uh, of the body. Um, so the hymn itself seemed to me to really strongly resonate with kingship claims. And then um, I don't know if we'll talk about chapter four, but I'll, I'll mention at least briefly here. What I also noticed was that uh, language that Paul applies to Christ within that hymn is then also language that he uses to speak of those who belong to Christ throughout the rest of Colossians. So not only is Christ the firstborn son, but the Colossians, the Christians, are spoken of as um, uh, sons of God and those who share in the firstborn son's rule. 
Um, uh, in other words, the language that Paul uses to praise Christ in Colossians 1 is the language that he then uses also goes on to apply to Christians and uh, in, in such a way that I think Paul is uh, speaking of how we or uh, those who read these texts as Christian scripture and believe what they say uh, participate in the rule uh, of Christ. So, so that gets, gives, gives you at least a little bit of a window into what went into my mind as I was starting to question uh, the dominant thesis of uh, um, uh, personified wisdom uh, as the context in, in Colossians 1. We are, uh, you've already mentioned some things about chapter 4, which have to do with um, uh, participating in the rule of Christ, that Christ doesn't rule alone, but invites us to join him in his kingly rule. And that kind of culminates then in your fifth chapter, and I think your fifth chapter might be your boldest chapter of all, uh, as it uh, as it, it kind of climaxes the book uh, with discussions about the righteousness of God, uh, the righteousness of God and justification. Um, and so I, I wanted to kind of uh, focus some attention there. Now, in a nutshell, very quickly, what I argue, I argue that what you get in Romans is you get a depiction of God who is the divine king, who reveals his justice. He enacts his justice when his righteous Messiah, the one who is Hadikaios in Romans 1.17, the one who is the, the righteous one, God reveals his justice when he resurrects him and justifies him, liberates him, resurrects him from the dead and exalts him at God's uh, right hand, which is essentially what I think Paul is arguing for, even though he doesn't use the righteousness language in Romans 1, 1 through 4. Uh, God's righteousness is re revealed in the event where Christ is resurrected, enthroned as the son of God uh, uh, and high. And this is an outworking of um, uh, God's righteousness when uh, when he does such a thing. So I argue then that uh, for Paul, the Messiah is the only one who is righteous. He's the only one who is faithful and obedient. All of the rest of humanity is depicted as wicked and unjust and violent and uh, rightly then um, subjected to us, subjected to a situation of uh, of divine wrath. So God's righteous verdict then is on display uh, in both his retributive justice against wicked, uh, wicked humanity, um, but it's also on display when he resurrects his Messiah, reveals his righteousness, and thereby saves all of those who are incorporated uh, into, uh, into uh, the Messiah. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to do justice to what I'm arguing in that, in that long chapter, but it's, it's essentially an attempt to make sense of God's righteousness, the language of God's righteousness, within the framework of the Old Testament, within the framework of a righteous Davidic king, uh, and taking seriously Paul's claim that the gospel is made known in Romans 1, 1 through 4, in the events of the royal son of God who dies uh, who is born, who dies, and then is resurrected and enthroned uh, at God's right hand. Thanks, Josh. Um, a quick follow-up question on that, and uh, I just want to see if I've gotten the, the, the tone and feel of your argument right. Is it important, and maybe you could explain, I think it is important, but maybe you could clarify, why does it matter specifically that Jesus is a king for your argument to work, that the that the atonement is connected particularly to Jesus as king. Um, is that is is that a fair understanding of what you're arguing, and could you clarify why? 
Yeah, let me, there are two or three things I would say in response. It is important. I mean, Adolf Schlatter said something along the lines of, if if God's salvation has not been revealed through the one that he promised uh, uh, to have to, in the Old Testament to have as one who would sit on God's throne forever. In other words, if God does not make his salvation known uh, in fulfillment to the promises that he made to his people in texts like 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2 and really throughout the Old Testament scriptures, then it's problematic for seeing how God has been faithful to the promises that he made to his people, uh, Israel, in the Israel scriptures. Uh, secondly, it's important in that the king is the one who is able to uh, both share in God's kingship. He's the one who participates in God's divine reign and, and rule, but simultaneously uh, represents God's people. So I would argue that according to at least the way the scriptures go uh, in the Old Testament and the New, the king is uh, centrally positioned as the only one or the only kind of person who can simultaneously share in God's reign and God's rule and also um, uh, act on our behalf and uh, represent us and embody um, uh, embody his people uh, as our uh, as our shepherd and our king and our ruler. So at least for those two reasons, I would say it's, uh, it is important, uh, at least in terms of how the scriptures set this up, that this figure is a kingly and royal figure. A final question for you, Josh. Uh, Christ the King is an excellent new scholarly contribution. You're to be congratulated. But I know you very much have a heart, not just for the for biblical scholarship in the abstract, uh, but in service of the church. Uh, as, a, as a kind of final uh, concluding remark, then, um, why do you think the research work you've undertaken for Christ the King matters for the church? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I, if my arguments are broadly right, then I hope it can breathe some new life into how we conceptual can conceptualize um, what it means uh, for us to be followers and worshipers of Christ who is king. And I hope, for example, um, in chapter four, where I, where I try to explain why we don't have kingdom language, but we do have language of, um, you know, being united to a royal figure, that um, this depiction of sharing in the reign of Christ, it's sharing in the rule of Christ as those who have been um, blessed uh, through the work of God and through the work of uh, Christ and the work of the Spirit, um, we are are not just simply sort of, you know, biding out our time here, waiting to go to heaven, but we are promised um, an active reign and rule in Christ's kingship now, and we are something that which is something that we are ultimately uh, looking forward to uh, uh, when Christ returns. Uh, I've had students who have read chapter two and have said, um, you know, that they thought the depiction of Christ as a royal law or a king who embodies God's Torah and that we then, by virtue of our union with Christ, are able then to follow that same trajectory in terms of love of neighbor as we are united to Christ. But we also see what our king did as he embodied Leviticus 19.18 and laid down his life on behalf of humanity and have said that that really gives to them sort of a beautiful uh, and powerful depiction of what it means for us ethically to seek to continue the narrative uh, uh, and 
sort of the uh, the ethics or moral trajectory that Christ has given us. So I hope that it, you know, at least may infuse uh, the church, um, even if um, even if it takes academics or uh, pastors or scholars to sort of uh, digest this really academic argument. I hope it may give them um, new frameworks and new resources to really make uh, Paul's texts come alive in a fresh and winsome way. I will say uh, that I think, you know, when I finished the book, I thought, okay, to some extent, this is a work of political theology, if I can say that. But I'm not sure exactly where to take the next step then uh, in terms of what that means or what that means for how we think of our uh, uh, relationship to Christ as it uh, relates to other um, uh, ideologies, how it relates to uh, politics as states, statecraft. Uh, how it relates um, to a lot of the political questions that we may have in, you know, 21st century uh, uh, North American and even more broadly sort of framework. And so uh, I think it does have implications for that. I'm still at this point uh, thinking about that and working through what some of those implications might be. Those are some excellent reflections. Personally, I have no doubt uh, that the book will be of tremendous service both to the church and to the academy as uh, we rethink what it means to be a follower of Christ and also um, as we think through political structures. Um, but thanks for joining us today, Josh. It's been a true delight. Your book is really terrific, and it's been a pleasure getting to think about it further with you. A reminder to our listeners, Joshua Jipp's book, Christ is King, Paul's Royal Ideology, released in November 2015 with Fortress Press. It's definitely a worthy read. It's available for major retailers. There's a link to Christ is King on our website, www.onscript.study. Thanks, everyone, for listening today, and thank you, Josh. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a lot of fun to be here with you. You've been listening to OnScript, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.